0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When we think about education, most of us think about our own experiences with what we might call modern traditional schooling. Classes by grade, a teacher at the front, testing, memorization, getting to know a new teacher each year, and maybe some more good things like good friendships, or sometimes more bad things like bullying. But what if school doesn't have to look like this? What alternative paradigms are out there? This week I'm joined by former Montessori principal and advocate for public Montessori at a national level, John Freeman, to discuss what the different features of Montessori are and how they can help children thrive. My hope is that after listening to our conversation, families who feel that education could be better for their kids have at least one more option that they might feel comfortable exploring. So if you have school-age kids, this episode is for you. I am so pleased to have with me today Mr. John Freeman. He is the former principal at the Annie Fisher Montessori Magnet School in Hartford. In his eighth year, he discovered that he had bone cancer, had to have a stem cell transplant, nearly lost his life before returning to his principalship, but then left to, rightfully, I think, protect his health. After his recovery, he started working through an AMI training center, providing support to public Montessori schools being run by non-trained Montessori leaders across several states. In addition, and prior to the pandemic, he worked through the National Center for Montessori in the public sector, where he remains listed as a senior consultant. Through all of this, he has been a Montessori consultant to Elm Elm City Montessori School, which is a district-led charter in New Haven. Thank you so much for being here today, John.
1: Thank you, Tracy. I'm glad to be here.
0: It's so you have quite the history and I'm very thankful that you recovered from your bone cancer. That is scary. As we were just saying, the stem cell transplant, that kind of technology. That's amazing that you're here with us today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been uh, a good lesson in life. Uh, It, it, it certainly deepens life and, uh, where before it was exciting, now it's exciting, uh, but in a in a in a more contained way.
0: That's I, well, I can't understand, but I can imagine that being the case after something like that. So,
1: okay. it him, I needed a lot of stimulation, and so my wife and I lived in a, in the highest child poverty rate district in Hartford, and Hartford has one of the highest poverty rates in the country. So uh, I was there before I met her and lived there for 19 years. And uh, since retiring, there's been a change of all those decades in Hartford. And uh, now we live, as you can see, if you can, but the viewer, the listener can't. We live in the woods across amongst the state forest. So
0: Uh, being in nature, that is is we moved to the country. I live back up onto the river and it's lovely. There is something so peaceful about it.
1: Right. Very exactly.
0: Different. Exactly. Well, we're talking Montessori and education today. So because this is clearly your life path is what you've been doing for years and even continue to do in a consulting role. Um, but before we talk specifically about some of the questions that we will get into, how did you become interested in education more generally and then into the Montessori system specifically? Uh
1: I was very slow to learn to read. I didn't learn to read until I was 25 and didn't seriously embark uh, in college until the age of 29, 30. So I had spent that those 12 years, first 12 years of adulthood uh, exploring the world as a non-reader, um, which limited uh, my job opportunities, And it meant that I wasn't following the traditional high school college pathway. Um, so I meandered and I found myself in a number of very deep learning roles. I was a page at the United States Supreme court. I was a lab technician for the department of defense. I worked for Boeing. I was a a wild sailor and climber in the Seattle area and, um, uh, then, uh, having learned how to read by the age of 29, I sat down and went to a very serious college, a great books college, that has campuses in Annapolis and in Santa Fe. And as I was leaving those uh, those years and that study, I found myself, I had been working summers at the Brookings Institution, which is a, a think tank in Washington, D.C., uh, during college summer years, and that, that seemed very macro in its approach to my trying to understand and find my role in the universe. I call it, and Montessori calls it, my, what is your cosmic task, and I was looking for my cosmic task, and I realized that education is the, not only was the thread of what I had been doing for 12 years, but I realized that it was probably the most important important role in society. And I wanted to have a hand in that. Uh, I looked at uh, Waldorf, I looked at Montessori and held them up uh, to juxtapose them, took a couple of months to study both. And Montessori was uh, the better choice for me. In public Montessori, it had to be. Well, we're three siblings who are who are private school teachers. And uh, I'm more I, I, I I need the 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 love, the life, the vigor that I think you find in public schools that you may not find in so consistently consistently in private schools.
0: We will talk about the public thing because I find it interesting on many levels. This whole private public school and having gone to a private school um, mm-hmm. and a public school for elementary and then a private for high school, I I think there's a lot to be said for each, but I think we need more focus on the public sector for mm-hmm. people just in terms mm-hmm. of accessibility and everything. But I, I'm curious, just going back to what you said, as a non-reader till 25, how was high school? How did that get Well, I quit. Through? How did that happen? Ah.
1: I, I eventually quit. Uh, but I, I was a good swimmer and uh, I could do math quite easily and was able to take uh, physics as a non-reader and calculus as a non-reader. Uh, so I was in advanced areas there. But uh, it was humiliating uh, being in the humanities um, and, and seeing the two different. It was a very large public high school right outside of Washington, D.C. and Bethesda, extraordinarily affluent community and well supported uh, school system financially. But there were these two tiers of, you know, the physics and, and calculus versus the humanities, show the level of uh, where the gifted teachers were. And how the gifted teachers treated the gifted students versus how the teachers for um the lowest track in the high school treated them and eventually i just gave up i think when we got back my uh my sat scores um you know there was a big huddle to figure out why i it's like they were discovering for the first time that i was an on reader and at that point i just used it as my exit ticket
0: wow and your parents that that whole time had no idea either
1: well, they knew I couldn't read, but they uh, they just thought, uh, knowing that I had special needs, that they just it moved me to a very affluent school district. That they it would be taken care of. My parents' involvement was not hands on when it came to education; it was uh, very hands off.
0: Wow. Uh, well, that is a crazy story, and I love that you were able to do so much. You know, before getting there, that's. Amazing yeah. and gives you the perspective, I think, that kids need in terms of education. So as we go, we're talking about Montessori today, mm-hmm. and I know not everyone is well aware of what the Montessori system is and what it brings to the table. So are you able, for, for those listening who don't know, to talk about what the distinction is between Montessori and what we might call our more modern Tra- I say modern traditional education because it's not traditional by any sense mm-hmm. in the longer term, but what people consider when they think about education today.
1: Sure. Uh, it, I'm very interested in this. Uh, in my career, I have I worked in the Harvard schools for maybe close to 24 years, and I think 16 of those were in Montessori, eight years as a Montessori teacher in the public setting, then uh, four years as a reading specialist, four years as a language arts consultant in traditional pedagogy environments. And then the last eight years, so the beginning eight years and the last eight years, last eight years is when I was founder and principal of Annie Fisher uh, Montessori Magnus School. So I have a a lot of experience um, with traditional pedagogy. Uh, One thing that is radically different is in traditional pedagogy, the teacher Gets 24 new students at the end of August, beginning of September, uh, and then 24 brand new students, and takes between I'd say two to three months to get to know all 24 students individually, what their tastes are, what their likes are, what they avoid, what they you know are passionate about, and um, then it has a swimmingly good time for you know the remaining uh, six or seven months, and then they disappear. And then again in August is another cohort 24, which seems very inefficient uh, to me and and can be devastating emotionally for, you know, children who are difficult to reach and who really need, uh, are dependent upon the emotional connection with the teacher. Very difficult to get through to that. Um, So Montessori, rather than having these 24 new students every August, keep students in one classroom in one environment for three years. So first, second, and third year, first, second, and third grade classroom, excuse me, first, second, and third grade students are in one classroom for three years. So the first grade students become second grade students, then they become third grade students. So they're with the teacher for three years. So getting to know the child is very simple because you've got them for so long. You might take those three months to get to know them, but then you have another you know 26 months uh, to spend with them. And that just seems much more reasonable. In the classroom, the third grade students graduate and eight new first graders come. So the teacher in Montessori only gets eight new students every year. So instead of getting to know 24 students, they only need to get to know eight, ideally. And then they stay with the teacher you know, for uh, that many more years. And uh, I think so much more can be done emotionally, socially, and academically, you know, uh, for that child in partnership with the parent, because uh, you develop that long um, tenure with the parent. And it's uh, I think the research is showing that it's a, a great emotional and academic benefit for for the child.
0: You know, I I am a huge advocate of multi-age classrooms. I think they're mm-hmm. one of the most important things. And it kind of highlights I think you've highlighted the link to the teacher and that long term relationship going into things, which is not something I'd considered very well, but obviously makes the most sense in the world for a child to bond with someone and have that time to really just hone in on on school as opposed to honing in on I've got to get to know a whole new environment every year and Mm -hmm. manage that. But it's also I would think, you know, kind of what you were talking about your own experience beneficial for kids uh, like kids aren't always at the same level in things regularly right so a right. child who's at you know first grade reading maybe at third grade math so does this the structure allow for that to happen for teachers oh, to really kind of unique. allow people
1: yeah i mean the community whether it's a first a second and third grade classroom uh, combined which we call lower elementary or a combination of fourth fifth and sixth grade which we call upper elementary or pre-K four, pre-K three and kinder in a primary Montessori classroom. um, What you have is a a social structure that really is like a family with students or with children of multiple ages or in a neighborhood where, you know, children of different ages are playing together. And there is that uh, implicit role modeling um, by the older students, you know, for the younger students and that's built in a very intentionally into the structure of the environment where um, a first year student comes in at any of those three levels and they're just awed by the environment the big kids the the bigger furniture and uh, they really come under the tending of the third year students in that environment it's very intentional I know who is going to be your big brother or your big sister we don't call them that but who is going to who are you going to be paired with? Who's going to show you, you know, uh, how to organize your materials? Who's going to show you where to find a place to work? Who's going to show you how to log your work? Um, who's going to show you how to how to prepare a snack, how to fix snack, how to clean up from snack? Who's going to show you? We eat all our meals in the classroom, Who's going to show you how to prepare lunch, how to eat lunch, how to clean up lunch? So it's built, uh, you know, it it goes into the recess, it goes into all aspects that. The, the students who are third-year go through a leadership cohort, uh, through, uh, especially through their second year. So the first-year students are in awe. The third-year students have been waiting two years to be in charge of the environment. They're really almost like um, uh, junior teachers because they have been waiting uh, to be in support of the teacher and to be leaders in the environment. So second-year students go through a leadership training or cohort where they look down and say, I'm no longer a first year student, but I'm not yet a third year student. I'm at this place of transition. So what does it mean to leave behind who I was as a first year student or as a first grader? And what does it mean you know, to take on the mantle, of, I'm getting ready to, to run this environment next year when the third year students will graduate to the next uh, level of classroom? So it not only, uh, that's just addressing the social aspect, but as you said in your question pointed to specifically, or your insight is the academic piece. So um, for, uh, there's a huge amount of independent or paired work or small group work in Montessori environments, and it needs uh, an older student often to help you. If you're, you know, less experienced at working individually with a concept or, you know, managing how to work with a partner with a small group and an older student is often assigned where volunteers go over and work. Now the interesting academic piece is that if that second-year student is going to help first-year students and you know as the teacher that the second-year student hadn't grasped the concept completely whether it be you know in the sciences or the social sciences or, or, or math then it's a beautiful time, not only for leadership, but for a review of that concept by leading the learning that goes on um, in many different places in the environment. So in that way, uh, the needs for those second year, third year students are individualized on an ongoing basis. It's a very complex environment, um, but it it because there's implicit waiting to be in charge and wanting to be seen by younger students as being responsible. There's very little play and very little horseplay. It's like everyone wants to be, I mean, the first year students are cowed and awed, and the second year students are like, I'm getting ready. And the third year students are like, I'm not going to mess this up because I am ready and I've been waiting. So this beautiful cohesion.
0: It reminds me of something I read a while ago on bullying And that one of the problems that, and I cannot remember who wrote this paper, but um, one of the problems they felt existed in the classrooms today and why bullying is such an issue is that children naturally form hierarchies by age. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at, like you said, the neighborhood, there's a way it goes. And kids often aren't bullied. The younger kids aren't bullied because they just kind of know their place and they eventually move up. It's something that naturally happens. You you start at the low end of the totem pole, but you're going to keep moving up as you get older, and that avoids bullying because the hierarchy exists, but you're never stuck at one level of it. But our same age classrooms have they have to create a hierarchy somehow. So what do they do? They find artificial means to do it. So it's what are you wearing or how good are you at reading mm-hmm. or anything like that. And so we form these false hierarchies and they stick with us a lot longer because how do you get out of that? How do you get out of someone not liking how your face looks or what clothes you wear? And it, we become focused on that instead of allowing, as it seems happens here, that natural progression of, of moving up to the higher level and being able to be in charge.
1: Right. and and not, And this is interesting because Uh, And primary, as I said, they're the pre-K-3, pre-K-4K. Then you go up to the next level again, three age groups, first, second, and third grade. You go up again, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. So the children, both at the kindergarten level, the third grade level, and the sixth grade level, learn to be leaders. And their exit ticket to go from primary to lower or from lower to upper isn't as much, in much less extent, an academic benchmark that is reached, but that you have become a leader in that environment that you have learned to control yourself, you have learned to contribute to that community. So as the students get older, and by the time they're in upper elementary, they become more metacognitive, and more aware of what it means to be a leader and being obligated to participate in that role in that community. So the idea is is that then you know, if there is an adolescent or a high school environment that we will encourage children to find their own voice and, as you said, perhaps temper their leadership so that it is positive, and so that when they leave, they're not a cog in the machine of democracy, but they find their personal role or public role as a leader, that they're not compliant, but they're contributory. I think that's the word.
0: I, I think it... Sounds makes sense to me. How do the kids do, though, out of curiosity when they move from that leadership in, like, say, grade three, and then they go back down again in grade four? Oh,
1: yeah, it's a good question. I know I, know I can burst um, out with excitement here. Uh, but as they move from uh, one environment to the next, of course, the, and the those three environments are similar. Um, uh, in monastery environments, the furniture tends to be neutral. The floors are neutral. The walls are neutral uh the the bookshelves, the desk, chairs neutral, so that the materials and the student work stand out and kind of trumpet with their colors and uh the student pride and you know work production across the classroom, they really become central. So as they go from one environment to the next, they're similar, um, they're similarly constructed, but the furniture gets bigger and the kids get bigger. So the transition from kinder to first grade or from third grade to fourth grade is done very carefully. It starts months, several months maybe in January of the year that they're going to transition and they start to visit the older environment. Uh, they may go for a read aloud for a, a 30-minute work block. They might take a material with them from the a com- material that comfort with to the bigger and older environment. Eventually, uh, they'll go and spend the entire morning work block, or they'll stay for lunch, or they'll go to recess. So, there's this, and they're given, of course, a mentor when they're visiting. So, they're making a connection with somebody in the environment um, that they're going to. So, uh, it's so just a, you, you might have been alluding to the shock of going into an environment, you know, where there's 16 kids who've already formed a cohort, you know, who are bigger and, and you know what they're doing. But this, not only this you know slow introduction to the environment, but then when you get there, having that mentor there uh, just creates this um, beautiful seamlessness. Seem- and if we bring in students from Montessori, we'd like to bring them in at the first grade level or at the fourth grade level, because that's the introduction to that environment. And uh, they can look around, the, even if they don't know Montessori, and realize that I'm beholden, you know, to practice the concepts and the work that I've been introduced to. They can look around and see, oh, this is what the, is going on in the environment. Instead of coming in as a sixth grader and not knowing what's a, what they're obliged to do and how to participate, it's easier, I think, if you're younger, looking up and saying, oh, I'm just going to mimic what I see my role models doing. So it's, it's, there's so much built into the stability of, of the monastery classrooms. When you then look backwards and say, or look across the river and say, what's going on in traditional pedagogy, it just seems uh, fraught with challenges.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I think we have so many people looking at alternatives nowadays to education, because I don't think kids' needs, and I'm talking about social, emotional, everything needs are not being met in a, a "Quote unquote traditional," even though it's not traditional, but modern traditional right. environment. So well, it's growth,
1: you know the growth of Montessori. It's not a secret. There are twenty two thousand Montessori schools in the world, across one hundred and forty five countries. So this is not a simple experiment going on in Italy or, or Germany or the United States. It it it, re- it has become global, and uh, uh, I, I'd have to look up what's happening, but I know. Uh, Both Taiwan and Chinese uh, national governments are or have been and are delving into widespread uh, Montessori implementation.
0: Fascinating. I did not know it was I mean, I knew it was everywhere. We have it up here, too. And we'll get to that issue because I think. Well, we'll get to it, but about that whole public versus private Mm -hmm. element of it, too. But I want to ask about one of the things that's always talked about in Montessori, if you can explain it more. It's this concept of the teacher is the observer, because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, when you look at a classroom, the teacher is the person up at the front of the classroom telling you how to do things and you then follow the teacher and do what they tell you to do. And that's not the way it is, is what I gather from looking up at Montessori. Is that correct?
1: Well, I think traditional pedagogy is changing uh, quite a bit, too. When I took my exam uh, to uh, to get certified as an administrator, uh, we watched this. Part of the exam process was watching a series of videos. And um, they were actual videos from public school classrooms, you know, I'm in Connecticut, those were Connecticut classrooms. And you observe the teacher, you observe the students, and then you wrote your critique, positive and negative, about what what was going on. And what would you do in your role as the administrator to coach the teacher based on what you had seen? And that was 10 years ago. And already uh, in two of the three videos that I watched, it was absolutely clear uh, and it's clear in the rubrics you know that we use to evaluate that the that it is a, it's a disaggregated classroom at this point. I mean that is has become standard practice. You're right. We've left the age where the teacher is standing at the front of the room and everyone's at their desks. And I think it's very slowly in my career shifted to where uh, the desks were put together in pods, and then the you know, very slowly now the pods of desks are being replaced by tables, (laughs) so we're getting to this cooperative work where it's not like uh, I voice and you repeat. What happens in that situation when you've got 24 students is you don't, that's why we have to quiz so much because you don't know who got it and who didn't, so you're constantly teaching and then doing a quiz, then reteaching, then quizzing again and then reteaching and and essentially, instead of having this disaggregated environment where your students who are quick with a particular, you know, field of concept, be it math or biology or one of the other academic or non-academic areas, you have a, a leader in that classroom, even if it's everyone is in fourth grade. Uh, so watching these videos, it was very clear, like in one of them, that uh, uh, the, the teacher, you only I was only watching like the... In the video, they only show a group of four students working together, but the teacher swept in and started m- moving around the materials and concepts and, and then left. And, um, of course, you know, in the other one, you know, the teacher is assiduously watching what's going on before she makes her mark. <laughs> um, so I, we're, we are, I mean, traditional pedagogy, I'm I, bilingual. I'm, in, you know, pretty fluent in both pedagogies. Uh, Thankfully, that is changing. I don't know how widespread uh, that is, but the national rubrics for uh, teacher evaluation, which are actually coaching rubrics, uh, are reflecting that the highest standard is that the teacher is an observer, as well as the outright leader of the instruction.
0: That's good to know because I know it wasn't, you know, my back in the day too was all of us in rows and sitting at the desk and listening to everything and going from there. And it was very similar even with um my my stepson, who is, you know, older, just graduated high school last year, but it wasn't very different for him either. And it was disappointing because I'd felt like hopefully by that stage stuff had changed a bit, but I'm glad but, to hear you know, it, it we're,
1: is. We're going to get into the private public thing, but I think yeah. whether you're uh, shopping for public or private, public Montes- private Montessori or, you know, what's a right fit for your child. I mean, you as the savvy parent, like my parents weren't, as I said, you know, they were hands off, you know, need to go in and, and look for these kinds of um, occurrences regularly in classrooms. We had, I want to just say this as an aside, uh, we had two Chinese boy teenagers living with us boys who went to a local parochial high school just just before the pandemic. and uh, large uh, parochial high school. and um, you know on parent nights, I would like, of course being the educator, sweep through all of the hallways looking peeking in every single classroom and in every single classroom but the science labs, as you said every in every like 30 classrooms all ha- each one had desks space facing forward in rows and uh and you know having taken you know those exams and been trained by university of connecticut you know as a, a school leader seeing that hold out like you say for your stepson it's it's still there but i think you know as you know as parent partners with, you know, our schools, we have to demand better.
0: Absolutely. And I think this kind of gets to the the bit of the public versus private. So I know, at least up in Canada here, I don't know of a public Montessori. There's probably one or two that are around, but truly it's a private school system. And that really limits who gets access to it right so Mm -hmm. you know we talk about parent involvement and only some parents can be truly involved and only some parents have options that enable them to look at like a a Montessori system so I know you've been a a large advocate for Montessori in the public system and I believe the Annie Fisher school it was a magnet school which means I don't understand all the U.S. terminologies for you've got charters and you've got magnets and you've got you know I don't know all of it but I gather it's public right
1: yes uh it is public um the charters are all public um because they're publicly funded Um, they may charters typically don't come under the auspices of a school district charters typically get their charter directly from the state department of education or the state board of education and so they can run independently um but Annie Fisher was not a charter; it's a magnet, and the word "magnet" means that half of our students were from inner-city Hartford, and half were from the suburbs. It was a deliberate desegregation effort. Uh, when I moved to Hartford thirty years ago, the school district was ninety-eight point five percent children of color, um, and the suburbs, of course, you know, being Connecticut Yankees, there wasn't a big cross. There wasn't a a big cross across the (laughs) district borders. So yes, it's public. And um, I came out of Montessori training knowing I had to be in public education and wanting the best for children in public education. And you're right, it was hard to find public Montessori. I mean, I'm from the DC suburbs. I had hoped to work in the DC public schools where they have had public Montessori for 40 years. Although that movement has not taken over, you know, the Washington DC public schools, it is very robust, but it is small in comparison to traditional pedagogy. And uh, I do know that in the last five years, there have been approximately 350 to 400 public Montessori schools started in the United States. As you have pointed out, some of them are charter, which means they get their charter and work independently of the school district. And many others are magnet. In Connecticut, uh, three of ours, uh, my wife and I are both uh, lifelong or career long Montessorians. And our original school in Hartford is about 35 years old. And I was the third teacher there. My wife, Carolyn, was probably maybe the sixth or seventh teacher there. And then Carolyn and I each started a public Montessori school within the Hartford public schools. And both of those, all three of those, the original school and Carolyn's, school and my school, not my school, but the school that I was principal, uh, had students half from Hartford and half from uh, the surrounding um, suburban towns. Uh, The one that I'm at in uh, the school that I'm currently at in New Haven is a a kind of a little boutique model where the state has granted um, a charter for this Montessori school that's part of New Haven public schools. So uh, I think the eye that the state has always had is that uh, is twofold, that one, uh, by having these seed Montessori schools around that they provide exposure for traditional educators to see uh, a a different pedagogy, as well as to affect, um, you know, more directly, you know, increasing the number. I mean, the state department is (coughs) quite enthusiastic to increase the number of public Montessori classrooms in Connecticut. There's no doubt about that. And they're funding uh, two, in two of those, they're funding adolescent programs, ad- monastery adolescent programs, which are extraordinarily rare. So, uh, but you'll find, as you look around the United States, clusters of these public Montessori schools in uh, Cleveland, in Denver, Milwaukee, Washington, DC, as I said, and they pretty much were founded uh, as kind of like one seed school by a visionary district leader who was collaborating with, uh, you know, a district leader or even state funding to start one school and then replicated. So you'll find like a cluster like Milwaukee has eight or nine public Montessori schools. I think Kansas City only has two. Now in Connecticut, we have four. So you, we can, I mean, you have to look at it long term to see like me over 30 years to see that there is steady growth. Otherwise it's a little disheartening that we're not like, you know, it's not like the overnight mushroom growing, <laughs> which we would hope for because we think we've got, you know, a really uh, sub- substantial pedagogy uh, for children. So it's it's a wait and see. But I have to say that uh, where this is a, a perhaps a little pointed, that as I looked across the principals, or as I looked across teachers in, in Hartford, I saw a lack of understanding and appreciation of Montessori. As I looked at their coaches, who are their principals, uh, Annie Fisher had a number, like three or four principals who sent their children to the this, this alternative pedagogy, although they were leaders of traditional pedagogy. And so the principals by and large were familiar with Montessori and were respectful and enthusiastic for it. And the state department at that level, totally enthusiastic and hoping for it. Uh, but, you know, this, in public education, the seed t- tends to come from the bottom, not the top.
0: So is that, cause that was one of my questions is, you know, you do have this system where you're, you're alongside This public system, so they do see, they get exposure of Mm -hmm. these methods. As you said, that's even part of the the plan is to get that school in there, let everyone see what's going on and learn from it. What is the hesitancy to change our our, the more traditional pedagogy? What what is happening?
1: It's a simple phrase. phrase. If, If somebody goes in and they haven't had this, you know, podcast or this kind of background knowledge. They go into a Montessori environment and it seems like 24 kids are doing 24 different things. And the takeaway is kids can do whatever they want. Which, you know.
0: But that's how kids learn. This is what it looks
1: like. (laughs) Because the students, this is a very important, this is germane. So if you're listening, you have to memorize this. In an office, Montessori noticed or in a work environment that an adult, some adult like Tracy, you might work for two hours and then take 20 minute break. Me, I'm more like I'm going to work for 15 minutes and take 30 seconds, 15 minutes, 30 seconds, got to run here, run that, you know, something stimulates me and everyone's got their own period of concentration and relaxation. And in Montessori, we honor that. So if we have open work blocks three hours in the morning, unviolated, no phone calls to the classroom, don't interrupt, no principal doesn't walk in and interrupt the teacher. Uh, No no intercoms, it's really sacred, three hours in the afternoon, it's two hours. But within that, the children have the freedom to respond to their own innate, I'm going to work for 45 minutes and take a five-minute break, then 45 minutes and a five-minute break. And another child has their own cycle, a third child. So when an observer comes into Montessori, they see children taking breaks consistently, which is confusing. And they'd understand that because it doesn't seem like anybody's in charge. And unless you know, we and we tend to have our observers watch one or two children, you know, for a duration of 30 or 45 minutes. So they can see that. and we explain they're going to go through this period of concentration, put the material back on the shelf, scan the environment, do a little tour, take out the next material, sit down and concentrate. Check in with their friend, see what's was over in the snack table. But I think that the hesitancy. For teachers has been that they have this exposure to Montessori but unless you have the deep understanding either before after or during it's hard to get and that's what I would be traveling the country doing is doing side-by-side observation with non-trained Montessori administrators looking at an environment and saying this is what's going on Which... and even the principal that I work with now when we would when I when she started she's now Montessori trained we would sit and do side by side uh, observations on the computer where we see each other's notes. And so she could see what I was seeing, which is different than what, you know, parents and traditional educators, uh, you know, take away. It's it's just different, but you have to, it's a a paradigm shift, you just get in there.
0: With, and it makes sense. I just think about all the different ways my husband and I work differently and, yeah. you know, he can get in and he can go for hours on something yeah. and then take I can never do that. I'm yeah. more I'm not quite at 15 minutes, but I I need my breaks every now and yeah. again. I can only focus for so long before it just gets overwhelming and it's no I need to get up, walk outside, take a look at something yeah. and then step back in. It reminds me too of an article that I know went viral years ago on the Finnish school system. And the Mm. teacher moving from the U.S. there and sharing this notion there of they take a break, they do 45 minutes and it's a 15 minute break. Every hour is broken up that way. And this was, I believe, older kids in in high school. But that was still how it was structured. And he how are we going to get through everything? How is this going to happen? And then found that by giving kids those breaks, they actually were far more able competent whatnot to focus on what they needed to do and then move on. And I think we've lost the respect for our need to to decompress and break for a moment as we're going through things.
1: You know, a good educator for you to look up um is Deborah Meyer, um, who was in Spanish Harlem uh 30 years ago. And she got she went on, uh, I found out about her because she was doing something similar to Montessori, but under the guise of traditional um pedagogy, and she won the MacArthur Award, which is the first time I had heard about that, the Genius Award. Uh, but like you said, and like the Finns, she believed in these open work blocks um, where students, based on age, I think the work blocks got longer as the children got older. But she'd be an interesting one to, uh, to see the retrospect, uh, retrospective change uh, from her original model. Um, I, I would hunt her down. Oh. Get absolutely on, get, on a, I, get on a podcast and I've come listening
0: <laughs> absolutely thank you I've written it down now so I'm going to look her up and see yeah, if you there's know. one person
1: I would find in the United States that I'd like to interview on education would be Deborah Meyer
0: excellent thank you mm-hmm. so let's get a bit more into the the public private issue so yeah. I have heard uh, it said that part of the success of Montessori is that we're basing it off of a private system in which you get children who already have a lot of privilege anyway. When you look at higher SES, everything like that, you're just not seeing the effects, but you now have it in a public system. And as you said, you're you're drawing from lower SES neighborhoods. Do you see the same positive effects regardless, or is it perhaps even greater for some of the kids in in who might not have the advantages at home? How does it play out in this more diverse environment?
1: That's that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah. uh, I mean, I have visited a number of private Montessori schools, but I've never really been to one. And I I don't frequent even traditional pedagogy uh, private schools. But, you know, of course, I'm familiar with them. I think if you study, um, I I don't know, another person to get on board would be Angeline Lillard uh, from uh, University of Virginia. Uh, She's a PhD researcher in Montessori and author. She wrote uh, Montessori, the science behind the genius, which is the most seminal work today in Montessori pedagogy. Um, It's really remarkable. And uh, she has been, first she studied uh, uh, Milwaukee. And uh, her work was published in the uh, journal Science, which is kind of an unusual place for an education researcher to publish on uh, the findings. And uh, she's been uh, poking around the three Hartford uh, public Montessori schools for like the last six years. And um, I, I can't sum up her res- results. You should get her or take a look at her results. I can send them to you, uh, but it's very favorable uh for all the students in the environment especially those uh the markers uh as they relate to the uh, uh low SES. so i definitely i mean uh, i mean i'm always looking to like i mean you know it's not just a talk but the life's mission is equity and um and it does appear because of the individualization that can be provided to students through maybe their nine years in a in a public Montessori setting, that we really can uh, drill down to provide the supports that need that they're getting an equitable education, totally designed uh, for their needs. Since we don't, the only whole group instruction that we do is um, a read aloud, all the academic instruction beyond that is done in small group uh, targeted instruction based on their proximal zone of learning. So there's the, you know, this, this mass delivery of instruction just doesn't exist. And so uh it's just giving the right lesson at the right time to the right child. And it does take, you know, only getting eight new students a year in order to be able to achieve that. You really need to know, you know, for the you know, for the third year students, those what is it, two years and six months, you know, being able to constantly over that time, get more and more refined in your lesson planning and lesson delivery and follow up and communication with parents, you know, and subtract 10 months from that. So for the second year students, you know, it's up to 16 months, you know, of that consistency. And it's, I think it's only through that kind of stability in the environment, socially and academically and the partnership with the parent. Uh, that you can provide that equity that I think and I am convinced is being delivered. And I I don't say it as an offhand observation. I really do turn to Angeline Millard for the proof, which is pretty convincing.
0: So you kind of just touched on the learning element of it. So I know one of the things that I see a lot when I've read up on Montessori is this strong focus in articles on academics, that it's Mm -hmm. a good program if you want your kids to do well academically. And I read there was one in the Hartford Courant that was on Current, I guess. Sorry, Mm -hmm. the French comes out every once in a while. Uh, And your school in particular, and they seem to highlight only the kids that were really excelling at something. Mm -hmm. And so it is the key to Montessori the academic achievement, or is it, but it seems like in our discussion so far, there's been a ton on the social emotional development, the stability, the leadership, these qualities that go beyond, yes, you will pass this test really well if you were to take it, or you'll you'll master this skill earlier. But yet, there seems to be this dichotomy between the pedagogy, as you've been describing it, and what seems to come out as the focus for others. Can you reconcile those? What is, is academics the key or are people just getting it wrong? And that's what we're looking at because we're a society obsessed with academic output.
1: I think, uh, well, so let's, 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 let's go through our mind's eye and, and create this, this small construct. The innermost circle uh, would be the, uh, the child, the, the child, the emotional child. The child is an emotional being and the second concentric circle, the one with the larger radius would be the, the social child. And the third circle with the radius of the three radii uh, is the academic child or the child interaction with the academic environment that the, the child needs to be and should be, and usually is approached through the emotional aspect. And that's typically the bond between the adult and the child. And if that bond isn't secure for the child, you know, uh, because of their own. Construct or perhaps what's happened, you know, in in the outside of school environment, that that needs to be uh, dealt with. The child needs to have access in the classroom, whether it's in traditional or Montessori pedagogy, must have access to the adult to work out that relationship and feel the security that they need, to feel the affirmation, to feel strong enough to transfer their interactions to uh, to a colleague, to a friend. And that's the social aspect. Uh, in traditional pedagogy, unless you're you know in a pre-K three or pre-K four in traditional pedagogy, you don't have access to the adult on a consistent all day basis. Uh, but pretty much, so you can in a monastery environment because the teacher is teaching small groups, and you can always keep, you know, a couple of children close to you as you work through that emotional adult-child relationship. From there, then we take like a look at, you know, how is the child developing socially? And of course, as you said at the beginning, this a lot of this is based on observation and really helping the child uh, who hasn't been successful, develop social relationship in very engineered ways in giving paired academic lessons or by having snack together or by having lunch together or creating a play space in the out of doors. And I just want to dial back on that, that because the teacher eats lunch every day and it's required pretty much worldwide in Montessori classroom, the teacher eats lunch in the environment with the children and the children are all seated at small group tables. So, this provides the teacher access in a non academic, non like uh, complex environment, the children moving around, time on it as much as needed over as many weeks or months as needed to develop that adult child relationship. And then, of course, you can imagine that a friend is brought into the table, a peer, and that to, whether it's the child has an affinity for somebody who is of their own age or older, and uh, that then that relationship is developed. So as we go back to the concentric circles, the child emotionally is tended to, and then the social development is observed and developed and only then, uh, is the academic piece uh, going to be successful. So we really are looking at it in emotional, social, and academic. So when you take a look at, you know, a lot of articles that are written and, um, and the one that was in the Hartford Current, of course, they walk into an environment and they see children who are like highly focused on the materials, which is the academic expression of their independence. But were you to be part of this podcast, or were you to be trained in Montessori, you would understand that that is only the flower of having worked through, you know, the stability of the emotional and social, and then you know the academic, especially in elementary because that's a social age where children want to work with another, but if they don't have the emotional stability, if they don't have the social skills, you know, uh, this, they're sustaining working on academics independently is, is observationally less likely than if they're, you know, working on like multiplication with bead material with their best friend. It's, it's so, it, it's it's much more you can start with the Harford current article or articles that you read, but then you have to be able to go beneath the veneer of that and see how uh, the pedagogy is constructed.
0: Makes perfect sense, because it's true. A child that doesn't feel comfortable is not going to learn at the heart of all of us learning anything is feeling a sense of, of yes. belonging and being yeah. and then comfortable in our own skin.
1: Acceptance. Yes. Love. So
0: exactly. Yeah. And I, that is one of those crucial things. And now that said, though, if a student does struggle academically, do they still fit in, in that Montessori environment? Is that something that they're able to handle? Say you do have a child that just really isn't getting something for a while. How it's Is that still,
1: there yes, isn't a social I mean, stigma
0: there? Is that?
1: No, no, no. I mean, in, in traditional education, there's, there has been a history of jumping from, um, a child being unsuccessful academically to um, special education testing. And uh, uh, traditional education for the last 15 years has created a, a buffer between what we call initial instruction or tier one instruction and the special ed bubble or transition. And that really is, you know, uh, a week in it, we call it uh, lesson study and child study where uh, we will take a look at a child and how they're interacting with the material in practicing a concept and try to understand perhaps why the child isn't being successful and to think what modifications we can make and then create uh, observational goals for two, four, and six weeks and then revisit and say, oh, this, that didn't work. What can we change? Can we, should we change, you know, the material, the partner, the instruction, the place of practice, there are lots of variables that could be changed. So, um, I don't think children ever leave a Montessori environment because they're unsuccessful academically. It tends to be that the parents, um, maybe become frustrated by the children's uh independent nature within the classroom which is difficult for parents you know who may have been who value traditional education and the traditional method of education Uh, that seems to be the kind of the exit ticket for families and almost never uh i mean never uh lack of academic success
0: I love how you bring up the parents. I had a discussion with someone once who brought up the concept of having to unschool the parent is yeah, to go yeah. back and get rid of all your own biases and thoughts as to what education mm-hmm. looks like and that we have to because you know at at least my generation like we talked about it was rows of desks looking up at the front and you were got your report card everything was based on your grades on tests and there was i don't even think we had an effort column at that point i know that's changed but yeah. we just got a b c d f And that was how it went. And it really takes a lot to get your brain out of that because it's been so indoctrinated as a parent that when you think about your child in school, that's one of the struggles is seeing success defined by test taking, not by a child that is very sure of themselves and is able to explore socially and may take longer to get a topic because you're able to take that time.
1: So the support in the home is really important. And uh, so since we're offering uh, an alternative pedagogy, we do, Montessori schools tend to have robust parent or family education events um, in myriad ways.
0: Now, one of the things I saw, just to switch gears a little bit here, is to go to your school, because this was a program you set up, is in the Montessori, you have beekeeping with your students, which I think is absolutely incredible. How did that come about? And was that a Montessori idea or is that just a you idea that you implemented because you could?
1: No, beekeeping is one of the the typical ways of uh, uh, or one of the avenues of typical avenues of study in an adolescent environment. With the adolescents, um, we want them to uh, interact before as a means to get to the academics. You know, we want them, you know. How did this land get cleared of trees? How did this building get built? You know, what types of trees are out there and why? What's successful? What is our you know environment? What's our microclimate? And um, beekeeping is just another way of interacting. And so much can be done with bees. It's kind of incredible because not only can you study the history of beekeeping, you can study the genetics of beekeeping, um, you can study the dance of the bees, you can study Uh, How the honey is made, you can uh, typically, Montessori schools with bee programs uh, do all of those. Uh, They do, what is the bee and how many academic areas can we pull out of it? We can look at, uh, you know, just generally the biology of the relationship between the bee and the plant or the history of beekeeping, or uh, what is honey made of? What can we make from honey? What are the genetics of uh, different bees? It can be done in all different kinds, of what happens to the bees during the winter. So play, so by looking at uh, a, a chicken, <laughs> like one of the other things that we, we take a look at at the school are chickens, and uh, how do we breed the chickens? Uh, how do we process the chickens so that we can serve them to our families? and. You know, have a celebration? How do we educate the younger students at the school about uh, what is the chicken and how did the chicken come to be? What civilizations? Uh, I think chicken is the most widely eaten uh, meat protein in the world. So where are, how did that occur? And what are the different uses? Where are the chickens uh, and what societies are they and aren't they? And then uh, cooking is a big part of um, cooking and marketing. So cooking with chickens and cooking with honey and making bee candles and selling them or you know, raising um, chickens for eggs and then selling the eggs to the families or the same with herbs. You know, What herbs do a survey? What herbs do our parents need? Then we plant the herbs and we harvest the herbs and we market the herbs. So the students, although there are rigorous academics, they go through these points of interest that are irresistible to them. So there's a practical aspect to everything that they're doing. It's not brought out of a textbook and enlivened, it's just the opposite. We go from the experience of life and the environment back down into how can you know uh, the resources that are the books and textbooks support our learning? And and then the these because the academics are subjects, the academic subjects. Are lenses through which we explore the world. I mean, the world is the bees and the trees, and you know, in the river and in the, in the pollution. So it's from that observation and exploration then that we help students infer the science behind them.
0: That is exactly my experience with uh, my own kids is it's amazing to me how much when we're outdoors and they experience something, it's that interest that goes. And then when they learn on it, they never forget it. Unlike going from a book the other way, chances are you're, you get it for a bit and then it's gone. You're not retaining it because you haven't, that question didn't come to you. That interest wasn't invoked first. It was almost forced upon you. And so I would imagine even with something like beekeeping, kids delve in different areas as they go off yeah. to it, what their interest is, is is it the dancing? Is it the honey? Is it the genetics? Is it the marketing? But it allows, yeah. and then I think about small group learning, where, you know, none of us are experts on everything. It's we yeah. need a team of people that are someone is the marketing person, someone yeah. is the beekeeping, or you know, the, the how to raise them expert, someone is something yeah. else. and it seems like that small group really facilitates that type of right, pair with right. people that have their expertise.
1: And it really secures the learning of, you know, when uh, seventh graders enter the adolescent community and those who are familiar and have an interest in the bees or have an interest in the garden, that that is their field of expertise. And that's where they uh, find their leadership and their worth is through that area of interest with which then they communicate to those who are new in the environment. So not only does it stitch tighter the academic pieces that they're learning, but that very prized piece, remember, not the academic like you read in the articles or in the Hartford current but that leadership piece is really at the core of it. And that's, we study or observe the child to find out what is their unique interest so that that becomes their place of leadership. It doesn't have to be as false as it is in a in a lower elementary classroom where all the learning takes place in the environment, and you know, somebody just happens to be very good at uh, you know making snack on a you know three day a week basis. But this is really like a, more of an adult like responsibility. That's I love beautiful. it. it's really, amazing.
0: I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I also love the fact that they're out in nature, which is something right. that I think, you know, we talk about the nature deficit with children. I, and I understand
1: that. Because we, as we designed uh, Fisher and we've designed schools in Montessori, uh, if you look at the original photos of Maria Montessori in Italy, you know, in the early 1900s, you see like children just like carrying desks out onto like patios or sitting in gardens and working. And at Fisher, if you go, all of the classrooms save two open directly to the out of doors. And the building was designed that way. That uh, my phrase is that the environment the boundary between the out of doors and the indoors should be as permeable as possible. And the children should have the choice to work indoors or out of doors. Pick up the table, carry it out onto the patio, take a partner and work. You know, I can observe you through the window. You're beholden to get some work done or a certain amount of work done while you're there. But you know, having the outdoor environment as a core teacher and a place for emotional stability are key key Montessori concepts and you'll see if you go to uh, well designed private schools across the country they are they have carried that concept out uh, pretty evenly in public schools we tend to repurpose schools um and take traditional schools and make them Montessori and so we haven't succeeded uniformly but if you're you have got the critical eye of the parent who's choosing a pedagogy for your child that's one hallmark you would look for whether you're in a, a traditional or Montessori pedagogy
0: well that actually brings me to kind of my my last question here for people because we're up at time but there is a lot of variability in Montessori as I like I've had a lot of families that have done it. And it seems experiences vary greatly, depending on the school. And can you explain for parents what are, and I guess it really doesn't even matter if it's Montessori, as you just said, it can be any school that you're looking at. But what are the key things that parents should be looking for, especially if they're looking at a Montessori school, to know that they're going to be getting the best experience for their children?
1: Yeah, that's it's a that's that's a question without an end to the answer. <laughs> so it could go on forever. But I've always thought that the Montessori environment begins at the curb. Um, it doesn't begin at the front door, it doesn't begin in the hallway, it doesn't begin in the classroom. It it's no, it's it's the whole environment. We in Montessori, we call the classroom the prepared environment. And I think, you know, uh, I mean a a savvy. Uh, education consumer would feel that, uh, love of the environment, um, and love of interaction that respect for both of those, uh, every step of their experience. Um, I mean it, that we feel that the environment should be impeccable. Now that sounds like, you know, like a little crazy maybe, but it's not, it should, Montessori believed, and there's, it's a quote of hers, that a, a child should uh, live in an environment of beauty. That being said, from the curb on, you know, I remember at our school, I was like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, I, I was looking at a store and I was like, oh, we should paint that, the beautiful blue that the office is. And, you know, when we open up the custodial closets, they should, you know, They should have, uh, like, be tiled and painted as well, that there is this seamlessness of that we just garden in our lives. That's what we do. We garden socially. We garden emotionally. And, um, you know, that that should be prevalent. I mean, the the room should be pristine and wonderful. The children should be independent of the adult. And um, moving through the environment with grace and courtesy you know uh teachers should not talk to adults um they should address children on an eye-to-eye level and a voice that can't be heard by anybody but that child that the pair of children or the group of children uh being guided through a school the administrator uh should never interrupt the work of the child or the work of an adult and we like we have had to train um you know, visitors from central office, public schools for office who come into the classroom environment and say, this is beautiful. What are you working on? You know, because we would never, you know, we, the fragility of concentration for those for whom it's most valuable has to be guarded. I mean, that's why there's no intercom. The phone never rings. The teacher is never disturbed. The child is never addressed. They are on a mission and uh, that has to be respected. And the hallway should be uh, beautiful. Um, it's just I, I don't know. This there, the, you know, we there's a monastery phrase called uh, grace and courtesy, and we think of that oh, as being oh, that's a beautiful phrase in the primary classroom, and that's the relationship between, you know, children. You know that they move through the environment gracefully. That's that part of the phrase, and courteously is that the exchange between children is courteous. Well, that has to do not only with between child and child, between the adult and the child and between the adult and the adult. <laughs> so we look for that kind of pervasive, uh, taking that core Montessori tenant and having it pervasive. That and this is an environment of beauty, the entire com- campus. Those two things.
0: Can I throw one out in there, too, is that I almost feel like you should be looking for Exactly the opposite of what you think you should be looking for, because I think if we go back to that parental struggle of, you know, our schooling, when you walk in and see children all doing separate things and some of them looking like they're just probably, as a parent would say, goofing off or something, that's actually all a good thing. That is not a negative. That is something that you do want to see. And anything where everyone's rigidly on the same thing is probably not what you want to see
1: Yeah, because every child every year no matter if they're first or second or third grade in that one environment every child will go through it typically i can't say every child will go through an explosive period where you know things aren't right and um the environment allows me uh to lose control because i'm upset and we want children to do that because that's an opportunity for them to learn and for us to be side by side with them and saying when you've hit this moment of frustration with your academics with a peer with something brought from home it's it's completely you're completely free to express that here because it's only through that experience then that they can work through it and learn how to deal with that kind of uh challenging emotion so we welcome that so you're right when you go into an environment they should it shouldn't look just like a you know, like sound and music, beautiful. No, there there will be exchanges and you want to observe the exchange. And then first you want to see as the observers, like how do the children themselves handle that? And then, you know, pause, pause, pause. You look to see where the adult is. The adult recognize that there's a breakdown in behavior. Is the child, is the adult observing it? And then does the adult after observing the children trying to reconcile with themselves, how does the, does the adult go? How does the adult go? What does the exchange look like? And what is the withdrawal of the, of the adult? And is it done in a very discreet and private manner? You'd never call across the classroom in Montessori. This is a, you know, people are, kids are at work here. <laughs> so you're right. Yeah. I'm glad you say that it shouldn't be this. Like it's not like a, a field of tulips and it shouldn't be children at uh, work on their social and emotional beings which is can, and can be very challenging and unnerving. And, you know, and we, we welcome that. It's a learning opportunity for all of us.
0: I will add to that that something I often have to talk to parents about is a lot of people find when their kids are in school, they come home and act out at the end of the day. And right. it's because home is the safe place to express it. it's They feel like they can let it out there because that's where it's safe. I find if you don't see those outbursts in the classroom, that's potentially a problem because kids are often holding it in. They don't feel that sense of safety. So I imagine having that three years, that time to get to know the environment, the teacher, everything does allow for that sense of safety to open up in that environment.
1: Because the, ch- the child has been controlled uh, all day is going to burst out. Uh, exactly. Because being controlled. But if you're helping a child learn to control themselves, then uh, they're be- beautifully moving to the bus and enjoying the bus because they haven't been, you know, contained. Exactly.
0: Yes, exactly. And I think that's part of getting our head around, you know, the idea of education being the place where kids go to learn and they don't do anything else. And that's not what learning looks like.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: It's oh, thank you. you. This has been
1: wonderful. What a learning opportunity. I can't wait to play this back once you published it so I can study (laughs) what I've been practicing. I've been practicing it as an art, and you've just aggregated it into a science for me. So, thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you for all of your knowledge, all your work that you've been doing too, because I really firmly believe we need a shift in our, our public system for people. We need access to programs like this that go beyond being able to afford it privately. And that is actually one of the biggest things for me. And I love the nature of it. I love the emotional core for it with Mm -hmm. children because I think that's what learning should be is it's not necessarily, the academics will come, Yep. And some of them will, some of them may not. It's some, We all have strengths and weaknesses and we don't yep. have to be wonderful at everything, but we should feel confident in ourselves. We should feel like we can bond with those that we're spending our days with yep. and feel safe there. And yep. I think that's really what you've driven home here is the importance of all of that and the focus on that. So unfortunately, I think for many parents, like we said, it's going to be getting out of our own heads of what we have indoctrinated to look at a system, say, that looks crazy. What's going on? That's what my kid needs is yeah. the system that looks like the opposite of what we have right. been built up in our mind.
1: It's a big paradigm. It can be a challenging paradigm shift for some adults.
0: Yes, I imagine. Well, thank you so much, John. Are there any last thoughts before we close off today?
1: Uh, no, not at all. Um, if If you have children in public education or Uh, or if you're in private education, get into public and uh, advocate for uh, starting a Montessori program in your public school district with public monies.
0: That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully it has provided some food for thought as you consider your children's education. We're actually off next week, but there will be a new episode the week after, so please enjoy your break and we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.